it's a fan fantastic pleasure for us to uh, get Branko Milanovic um, here. This is when the when the Inequalities Institute is really ascending to get stars coming coming to talk coming to talk to us. Oh, but I remember I have to say first of all, hashtag LSE capitalism. Okay, hashtag LSE capitalism. And this is being put on by the Inequalities Institute. Uh, and if you want to know more about the amazing things which the Inequalities Institute has been doing and is going to do, get onto its website. Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> So, Branko is going to talk for half an hour, 35 minutes or so, and then Mariana and Paul, and I'll introduce them when they speak again, to, are going to be discussants. And then I hope we'll have about 25 minutes or so for questions and discussion. Uh, so, um, I almost don't need to introduce uh, Branko, except to say he, <coughs> he, he wrote, uh, well, the two books which he's written, this book which is just coming out, which is super exciting, Books, he wrote a book in 2005 called Worlds Apart. And this really, for the first time, um, engaged with the idea what would happen if you tried to do a world distribution of income. And nobody really, I mean, people have maybe talked about it, nobody really done this before, before then. So, I would say that this is the, this is an extraordinary achievement. Putting a big, big, big picture thing on the on the map, and then in a uh, uh, book on global inequalities, about three years ago, he introduced the concept of the elephant, and. You may well know the concept of the elephant, but the elephant illustrates three features of income distribution in the world. One is the rising weight of the middle classes outside the advanced world. A second is the declining weight of the middle classes in the advanced world, and then the trunk goes right up like that to tell us about the top 1%. So this was a marvelous way for certain people like me to remember what was, what was going on. Uh, and I will, without more ado, get you to come and talk to us. Thank you very much. Well, 
Thank you so much, David. Thank you for this excellent introduction. Actually, it saved me some time because I'm not going to explain the elephant graph. You did it. <laughs> uh, it's always a, a huge pleasure to be, to be at LSE. Uh, obviously, like, uh, I'm very grateful to all of you to have come over here tonight. It's Friday evening. It's a beautiful uh, weather outside, so I do doubly appreciate your being here, and I hope you will not be totally kind of regretting having come here. Uh, so let me go then uh, quickly into what I want to talk. You know, you know the title. Actually, Paul and I and Anna had a little bit also with the discussion. I think this could be a new term. We, we actually talked about globalization, embedded liberal capitalism. It's a really quite a mouthful, but uh, I think actually uh, <coughs> we would maybe manage to explain why we uh, had, uh, had decided to call it like that. Obviously, I will talk about global inequality and uh, the evolution over the, the couple of centuries. But before I do that, of course, we have everybody, this is now uh, general practice, we have to advertise our own work. And uh, this is, uh, as David said, uh, global inequality. Most of my talk will be based on this book, which you can also find out there at a very affordable price. Uh, <laughs> And uh, then the new one is coming, actually, it would, I hope it will be out this August, uh, and it's called, as you can see, somewhat enigmatic capitalism alone, but I might explain later, maybe in the Q&A, why I gave it such a title. So, now, I will first actually start, and I would then explain and show uh, what uh, I believe like uh, are two key features of the world that we are living through now. And I think it's particularly interesting, I believe, for the young people, because I would, uh, you would, I think, see empirically how different is current period compared to the periods over the last two centuries. And I think I mentioned that I think it's very important because uh, we are too much, uh, how should I say, we suffer what, what you might call presentism. Actually, we are so f focused on what is happening today, now, that I think very often we forget to actually look backwards and to see what is happening now in the context of, of history. So two points which I think are important to realize. First one, and that's partly why my book Capitalism Alone is called Capitalism Alone, is that capitalism for the first time in history is, I think, the sole socioeconomic system or the mode of production in all the countries in the world. Obviously, the immediate question will be, like, how is China capitalist? I will not talk about it today. That's a whole chapter in my forthcoming book. But I think that the arguments are pretty strong. So just believe me for the arguments until the book is out. Uh, and then you can criticize it. Uh, and the second point is that we also have what you might call rebalancing of the world with the rapid increase of incomes in Asian countries, again, China, but not, not only China. We are, we are talking about countries like big countries, obviously huge countries like India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, Burma more recently, and so on. So there is this rebalancing of the world, which I think is important. Uh, because we, again, focus too much on what's happening today, actually, this very moment between China and the U.S., and we forget that actually what is happening now is the return to the relative income levels. When I say relative, it means relative between, uh, you know, Asia and China and Western Europe 
to the position where they were in around like 1500. So in other words, when you look at the distribution of income in the Eurasian continent, and now you can include, of course, North America in that as well, I mean, the more recent period, you actually then had really higher developed regions in the maritime regions of India, obviously, eastern China, and then of uh, city-states of, of Italy, the Netherlands, and then the UK. And that's where we're really the more developed parts are. And that's exa exactly, I think, what we are going towards in this century. So the rebalancing of the world and the rise of Asia is to some extent the return to where the world was uh, 500 years ago. But obviously at a much higher level of income. Then I will say something about the emergence of the global middle class. This is, again, something related, obviously, to the rise of Asia, as you will see in a minute. It's also, I want to mention, a very new development. We have never had in history a global middle class. We have never had, actually, a sufficient number of people who were located around the median and that number, I think, actually, again, because of Asian growth, is increasing every year. Now, of course, as Asian growth is uh, outstripping others, they are moving upward in, their, in the global income distribution, which then again has an impact on the position of the middle classes of the advanced or the rich countries. And David said that before, is that, of course, we have now a really lots of interesting developments that you really have to kind of uh, sometimes have problem visualizing them. You have the growth of the global middle class, or I call it still middle, but it's really global medium class because they are not really rich people by the Western standards, but they're in the middle of the global income distribution, and we have shrinkages of the Western middle classes. So the two uh, uh, movements, I believe, are, actually, are quite related but they, as you can see, they have different implications. The, sh the shrinkage of the uh, Western middle classes has a clear political implication. The growth of the global middle class doesn't have as clear political implication uh, as, at least to me, because there is no political space within which they can actually exercise whatever political role they, they might have. So it is mostly maybe similarity in... Uh, um, education, similarity in consumption patterns, but not political role. Now, it remains maybe for political uh, scientists and maybe political philosophers to think whether that would be this new development would actually produce some forms of, or some new political space where that middle class would be able to express itself. I'm talking about global middle class. Then, if we have time permits, we'll talk, I'll say something about the last 25 years in the rich world, and I think that's basically it, and we would move to the, to, to the Q&A. So let me start with the long run, very long run. Again, I will not go in, uh, into the data, like uh, how it was derived. As you can imagine, uh, the numbers which are over 1820, 1850, 1870 are much more tentative than the numbers that we have now. On the vertical axis, you have the Gini index, and on the horizontal axis, as you can see, you have uh, the time or the years. So the data start from 1820. It's actually essentially driven uh, how it is done. Let me just say in one very simple sentence. What you depend on in order to do these numbers from the 19th century, or you depend on two pieces of information. First is a crucial one. It is Madison Agnes Madison database of GDP per capita. So you need a GDP per capita all expressed in the same units, which is actually 
uh, I have to say it is now up- updated by me using 2011 PPPs. And then you need a kind of a distribution function for large countries. So how these distribution functions are actually derived is really kind of a little bit like when you go into sausage factory, you don't want to see too well how it is done. Uh, because obviously, you know, distribution function for China, 1820, distribution function for India, 1820, it's really a lot of that is, is a guesswork. <clears throat> but what is important is that actually we have these benchmarks of GDA per capita, which are crucial, and they don't vary very much from one uh, revision of the medicine database to the other. And then uh, you essentially then essentially put these distributions on top of these benchmarks of GDP per capita and derive global income distribution in the past. Now, in the last 25 or 30 years, of course, we are more sophisticated. We have now household surveys. So this is what David was alluding to that before. You collect it from all the countries. You actually then adjust for the price levels. You even adjust for the underestimation of the top 1%. So our data are obviously much better now. But they are far from ideal. Uh, Now, what does this graph show? It shows you that we start as the world with a relatively high level of global inequality of 55 Gini points, which is actually about the level of inequality in Brazil today. And then over during the entire 19th century and all the way to the early 20th century, we have an increase in global inequality. So what is behind that increase in global inequality is, as you can see, industrial revolution and the rise of the West. I will explain that in the next graph with more detail. That This is all for now. And then we have the global inequality staying at an extraordinarily high level of inequality of Gini 70 points or even over 70 points through the latter part of the 20th century all the way towards until practically the last decade or maybe the two last decades of the 20th century. And then what do you see? You see a significant decline of global inequality which is related to the rise of Asia. Now the intuition there, I think it should be very clear, the intuition is that the rise of Asia drives global inequality down because these are people who are, lots of people first, lots of people who are very poor in the beginning of the period and then they become Uh, less poor, middle class, or richer, and consequently that middle becomes larger and global inequality goes down. It is a very, very sort of, I mean, how should I say, broad brush view of history, and particularly recent history, because there are many other issues there, for example, what will happen in the future with Africa and so on, but let me still still remain at this kind of a very uh, broad brush uh, uh, general level because I want to show you how also you can look at these two centuries and see our period, I think, much more clearly than, uh, than we would see when, when we don't look at the past. Um, I will explain in a minute, but you remember the title from Karl Marx to Franz Fanon and back to Marx with a question mark there at the, at the end. So what that inequality that I've shown you can be also, what you can do with that inequality of the Gini 55, you can decompose it into two components. And that's, of course, what everybody has been doing. And actually, the original work was done by Francois Bourguignon and Christian Morisson. Uh, But the the issue is actually, and I'm just saying that 
really many young people uh, that I teach, whenever you do decomposition, you should really not simply decompose. You should actually think what is behind it, because every decomposition has a story to tell. So if you decompose global inequality, what you have here is a blue uh, uh, bar, is inequality which is due to inequalities between the countries. So that's the inequality between, for example, in today's world, because you know it goes all the way to 2013, it's the difference in average income between the UK and Bulgaria, to say, to use the example from the European Union. It's Mexico versus the US. It is Spain versus uh, Morocco. It is Malaysia versus Indonesia. So it is the mean to compare to the other mean. And then that could be called, as I called it, location. In other words, how much of total inequality is due to the differences between the countries. And what you notice there, and of course we have problems because the number of countries is increasing you know, over time, but these are population-weighted numbers. So you know, it, doesn't, you know, it does matter uh, the number of countries, but less than if you just had no uh, uh, population uh, weighted uh, data. So what you notice is that the 19th century all the way to the 1950s is a period of dramatic diversions in mean country incomes. Where does it come from? It comes from the fact that the Western Europe and North America and later Japan are becoming much richer, India is stagnating, and China went even down. So essentially these three large groups of people, China, India, the West, are moving in very different directions, and that's more or less that's what is actually driving inequality up. On top of that, what you have during that period, and it's actually a very interesting period, this is now the second part, which is inequality within nation states. So this is the second part of which global inequality <clears throat> is composed. Now, what is that second part? It is inequality within each country, then added up across all the countries, of people in that country. So you should think of this red bar as difference in income between the uh, farmers and landlords, between workers and uh, capitalists, between you know, rich classes and poor classes. In the UK, plus in Russia, plus in China, plus in India, and so forth, to all the countries. And what is, that, what is very interesting over that period of this 100 and plus years is that you have the rise in both blue part and the red part. The blue part goes up because countries become different in income levels, which then, of course, you can say led to the economic domination of the West over the rest of the world, colonialism, and the age of empire, as it were, is driven by the blue. And the red was, is increasing as well, and it's rising class conflict. And when you look at the importance of this red bar, then you can, of course, also say, well, uh, if you're writing, that's why Marx was in the title, if you're writing, uh, if you're like Marx, sitting and writing in the 1860s and so on, uh, you obviously don't, have the, don't know these numbers. Actually, we know these numbers only recently. We have known them since probably 20 years, 15 years or so. But uh, you, your whole perception of the world is based on two things. First of all, that the class conflict within each nation state is a dominant cleavage. The second point is people who are poor in each country are at relatively similar material circumstances, so there could be some solidarity between them. Now, think of this, how it would change then in the second period, which I call, you know, uh, Franz Fanon period, because there, the blue part, which was really large income gaps between poor 
and rich world and the creation of the three worlds, the first, second, and the third, mean now that actually the cleavage, the difference in incomes between the, the, the countries is really the key cleavage. So you cannot now ha say, and, and for some of you who know your Marxist literature well, it became already clear in letters between Engels and Marx in 1880, 1870, I think 78 was the letter, when they talk about the embourgeoisement of the English working class. It's essentially what happened is that the poor people in the rich countries became much richer than the poor people in poor countries, so you really do not have similarity in economic circumstances anymore between them. Moreover, in the second period, you have obviously after the World War II introduction, even before introduction of the welfare state, as you know, goes back in Germany to Bismarck, and you have reduction in income inequalities within countries. So the second period is a period where you have the creation of the three worlds, and that's Franz Fanon is actually a very good exemplar of ideology of the three worlds, where really the third world is the proletariat of the world, and the advanced countries of the first world are the bourgeoisie of the world. And actually, there is a quote from Mao Zedong which says exactly that. And then the class conflict within countries diminished because you have reduction of inequalities within nation states. And it's not only the case in, uh, in the West, it's actually the case in many countries that have actually gone through the period of developments, and obviously that's the case in all the communist countries and others. And why are we now in the third period? Because as you can see, the graph really looks very different now, is because the rise of Asia, which I've spoken before, is shrinking the blue <coughs> bar very significantly. At the same time, we do have an increase in inequalities within most countries over the last 40 years, which increase slightly in the graph because we are really talking about the world here, but they're increasing the, the red bar. So the current period is very different from the others because this is the age of convergence between the countries, or among the countries, rather, and it's the age of rising eternal cleavage. <clears throat> so we don't have, unlike the first period, which you can say was bad on two grounds, divergence of the countries and divergence within countries. In this period, we have convergence between countries, which is good. Remember, it is population-weighted. So the fact that China is converging is much more important than if Chad were to converge. And the second thing is a reappearance of the important cleavage within nation states. So I think this is the story. I will I have to actually finish with this slide here. But this is actually uh, a story which I think, essentially, if you extend it into the future, into the 21st century, is going to dominate, I think, the 21st century. It is the story which is behind the creation of the global middle class. It is the story which is also behind the creation of the global plutocracy of the global 1%. And it is basically a story where the differences in income between the nation states would go down Again, with the caveat what will happen to Africa, but the cleavages within nations might become exacerbated and would become stronger than they were in the second period, second age. So now let me go over some other parts of the story. This is, a, I think, a graph which illustrates what I've already spoken about. It is really the, the rebound of Asia. Yeah, as you can see, China, Indonesia, and India here compared the China and India to the, every, the, the P, uh, GDP per capita of the, of the UK, uh, Indonesia to the GDP per capita of the Netherlands. And of course, during the 
colonial period, you have a significant uh, relative decline of those countries. Now, it is up to the historians to figure out whether that the significant decline, relative decline, was only due to the increase in real incomes in the West, or whether that increase in real incomes in the West actually was a condition, was conditioned or influenced the decline of incomes in the South. But whatever it is, the facts are, I think, quite straightforward. Then you actually have a period where, actually, where you, uh, and that actually period is interesting, coincides more or less with the Indian independence and the Chinese revolution, and of course independence of, the, of, the, of Indonesia, where you have the stabilization of these relationships, but at an extremely low level. As you can see, actually the ratio was then, uh, I mean, the, the relative income of those countries was about 7%. Uh, which then meant the ratio of some, something like you know, 13 to 1 compared to the uh, relative income of the UK or the Netherlands. And then you have the rebound. And then if you extend that, you know, because this rebound is really now happening relatively fast because with growth rates of 5 6% and absence of growth in the rich countries, you, know, you actually have, you, know, you start capturing that position which you had in the beginning. So, uh, you know, by, with some simple projections, you basically can say by 2040, you will have China at a position where it was uh, in, in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and then India, Indonesia coming later. But certainly by the end of the century, they would have, I mean, under such assumptions, they would have exceeded their position, which they had at 1820. And as I was saying before, there would be a return to a, to a relative distribution of economic activity which existed in the, uh, you know, early Middle Ages by what is called Middle Ages by European standards. <clears throat> Uh, that is obviously present in all the different forms and shapes. I can, particularly with China, I can go on showing all kinds of things. For example, in this case, I'm showing, I'm showing you the, the convergence of Chinese and American incomes. Uh, the U.S. distribution is on the right in, in red. The Chinese is on the left in blue. And uh, it's in a relatively short period of 11 years, we have much more of an overlap. Now, there is, as you can see, there is still a very imperfect overlap because China is significantly poorer than the U.S. But the overlap is becoming more and more significant. Just to give you an idea what it means, if you had uh, on this graph uh, U.K. and Germany, you would have almost total overlap between the two. In other words, there would be not much of a difference. If you're at the 30th percentile in the UK, your difference with the 30th percentile in Germany is very small from the global perspective. Maybe, you know, Germany has higher incomes at the bottom, uh, and UK could probably would have higher incomes at the very top, but the differences are small. Whereas, obviously, with China and the US, the differences are large. A different way to, to, to see that, and I don't have it here, but I can tell you, is that if you take, for example, you take the third urban decile on China in 1988, and then say, okay, at what global position were they? And they were something like 35th percentile in the world, meaning that they are better off than about 35% of the people in the world. And then you look at them like 15 years, or actually more than 20, 25 years later, and they have leapfrogged over about a billion and a half people, which means they have leapfrogged over 20% of the population of the world. So th these are actually, particularly as I said, with the Chinese data, the numbers are quite staggering, and that's what I'm saying. We, have now, we are now witnessing the largest reshuffle of relative incomes since the Industrial Revolution. 
evolution. What it means is that you know, relative income by definition are limited in the sense that you have your position you know, at a percentile. You are at this percentile or that percentile. Well, if I'm catching up with you and becoming richer, uh, you might still grow. Your real income might still grow, but I would be ahead of you because the number of slots is 100 slots or 1,000 slots. So the relative positions obviously are limited. And what is now, I think, would be happening in the future, and it's already happening with the advanced countries, is that the bottom of their population, and that was actually implied in what David was saying before about the elephant graph, is being gradually taken over by the middle classes and others from the emerging economies. So their relative position in the global income distribution is shifting down. It's very dramatic, for example, in the case of the U.S. bottom, which actually shifted down like seven percentiles in, the, in the 25 years. So what will actually the, the, the world from the Western perspective, rich countries' perspective, in about 40 years is going, such, is going to be such that people in rich countries would be, there will be people who will be in a very many different positions in the world income distribution, which I want to show on this graph, which was not, the, let me just skip this one so I will not have the, time maybe, but which was not the case until recently. So this is 2011. I will go very quickly. This is, you know, you have the global income distribution. You draw it to the line of $600. You have 10% people who are in absolute poverty. Here is your median income of the world, which is very, you know, moderate. As you can see, it is actually uh, less than $6 per day. Uh, then you have the mean, which is which is higher because the, I mean, the, the feature of all the asymmetric distributions is obviously that the mean is larger than the median, so that's the global mean. As you can see, it's 5,500, but what I really wanted to show is that this is actually the median income of the Western world, if you will. It is actually West, uh, Western Europe, North America, and Oceania. So that median person in the, in the rich world is at the 95th, 91st percentile today. And even very uh, poor people, like for example, this is uh, from the Western perspective, relatively poor, very poor actually, this aisle, which is the US bottom, this aisle, is here at something like 74th percentile in the world. What, what I was saying before, this <coughs> encroachment on that position will mean is that that this, that, that this aisle uh, for, for the UK or the US or Germany would start shifting down. And actually, it can actually shift down relatively quickly because the inflow of the richer people is large because these are large countries that are growing. So that's why I'm saying in, in about 20 years or so, you will actually have in rich countries, you would have the uh, people who are in the global top 1%, people who are in the global 10 people who are the global you know, uh, uh, quintile, but you would also have something which didn't exist maybe for two centuries. You would have people who will be at the median, global median income. And that actually means it's a novelty because basically all the income distribution that we have dealt with in rich countries was the income distribution, as you can see, in the top 20%. So that's where the, all the activity and all the fights about the distribution were taking place. 
and uh, now that would be actually, that would change. Now, as I said before, it doesn't mean that you actually become poor in, in uh, uh, real terms. It simply means that your real income growth is such that actually you, you cannot, you are being overtaken by people who are coming from behind you, but with higher real income growth, and basically your position is, is lost thereby. So David, how many more minutes do I have? Uh, two, three, two. four. Okay. No, no, no. Just go on. It's no, no, no. I'll, I'll just really have to finish. I, but I want to finish. Oh, let's go. Oh, really oh, 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 oh. uh, I want to go backward, back. I'm not going to talk about the elephant graph since actually uh, uh, David explained it very well. Uh, I want to show something which is actually new. I was using medicines data, and it is also related, obviously, to my talk, but it's a little bit of a detour, but because it's new for me, I actually like to present it. Uh, what it shows is uh, uh, mean uh, world income based on GDP per capita from medicine data, which is, of course, which is the blue line, which is actually the bars, and of course that you see, of course, this tremendous increase in, in real income from end of the World War II, especially, essentially, the multiplication by four, and then, on the other hand, you see the coefficient of variation of this GDP per capita, which to some extent can be assimilated. It's not the same thing, but it's similar to what I talked about, global inequality between individuals, because here it is not between individuals, but each individual is given the GDP per capita of his or her country. So it's similar, but it's not exactly the same. However, this graph is very often used by people like Bill Gates who love sort of uh, nice stories, you know, like uh, in, in Citizen Kane. There was, uh, you know, remember that uh, the guy who was old and they, they delivered him newspapers only with really beautiful stories. So Bill Gates is a little bit like Citizen Kane. He loves only good stories. Uh -huh. Now... He, the good story that he loves is this story. It says, look, we have become much uh, richer. The world is really becoming richer. We have multiplied. So it's always we, we, we. But who, who is we? It's, it's, you know. uh, we have multiplied income by four times, six times, whatever. And at the same time, we we are becoming uh, more equal because, as you can see, this coefficient of variation is going down. So really, the things are really uh, going swimmingly. Uh, but uh, the same graph, same data, show you also, which I thought actually was interesting, to just take the same thing, but look at that a little bit differently. And what I did here, and this is actually, I finished with that, what I did here, I said, I, put, uh, I asked the following question. Let me take the richest country in 1820, which was uh, Australia. Let me take the income level of Australia then, and it's all in same prices in PPP of 2011, and say how many people in the world live in countries that have a GDP per capita below Australia in 1820. And the number is that 7% in blue. So basically you can say 7% of, of people live in countries that are basically two centuries behind the, I mean, today's world. So they're basically they're two centuries behind. Then you ask the same question, take the, the country that was richest, richest in 1914, which is the UK, and say how many, what percentage of people in the world live in countries below the level of UK 100 years ago, 105 years ago. And the number is 33% of the world live there. And then you do the same thing for the United States in 1970, and that's basically 50 years 
uh, uh, before today. So essentially, even if you leave this aside, the 45% uh, of people who are live in countries that are, uh, that are behind, uh, they're lower than the U.S. 50 years ago, you have still 40% of people who live really in a different century. And you have this 10% of the world that I've showed you before, which is below the absolute poverty line, or 7% of people who live in the poorest countries that are like two centuries behind. You essentially have people who live at the same income level that they have lived probably 1,000 years. Not they, but the, the uh, poor people have lived in a, in a thousand years. So what I want to say, and I will stop here, is that actually every, uh, uh, when you work with global inequality, uh, the, the thing is actually complicated in the sense that every nice picture, it's like uh, when you look at the coin, there is a nice side to the coin and you, you can really tell a nice story because indeed the world has become in many respects better. But I'm uh, just saying be aware, be, be, be wary of averages. Averages are great, and I use them a lot, but the averages very often, particularly in an unequal world with asymmetric distributions, with many people at the very, very top, actually are uh, uh, somewhat misleading. And to give you a simple example, imagine the situation where you have, on one hand, very rich people, and on another hand, very poor people, so very high polarization in a society. And in that case, the average would really in, uh, uh, reflect nobody's experience. It doesn't reflect the experience of the rich nor of the poor. And I think that we should actually keep that in mind and when we look, with the, uh, look at the data and numbers, we should always actually, I think, go further, particularly now in an unequal world, go further than the averages. I'm, not, I'm, play, I'm actually pleading you know, guilty on that because oftentimes I've also worked with the averages. They are simple because they, you add them up and you get the total, which is very nice. But they are, as I said, uh, sometimes misleading. And I think this is a, a story which I think I tried to illustrate that with, with this number. So I think I'll stop here and thank you again for your attention. Thanks. Well, thank you, thank you so much, Frank. I'm totally, I'm totally wowed by these, uh, by the various graphs you put up. Actually, particularly the China-U.S. distributions over a period just from. 2002, 2013, wow, incredible. Anyway, so now uh, going to introduce Mariana Go, who's, uh, who was at Oxford for some time, taught at Oxford, and then um, very, very sensibly, um, how should I say, escaped to the World Bank, where she uh, had be, been rather wizard at developing multi-dimensional measures of unemployment and is a, is, is a, is a real expert in, in that, whole, that whole field. However, the World Bank being an organization, they felt she needed moving and being put in charge of the Middle East. Now, let me say, she's just come from Baghdad this morning. And in Baghdad... She had to go around wearing armor with a bodyguard. So you should, she's now feeling very happy and relieved to have got rid of this heavy, heavy clothing. And, uh, and I, I'm very, very happy to welcome you to discuss Branco's paper.
Thank you. It does rather, it does feel rather safe in here, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, uh, thank you very much, David, for the invitation and the Institute, the Inequality Institute, and for um, Branco and Paul for um, allowing me to sit next to these great minds. Um, speaking after Branco is always a challenge, and in this case, more, there are more than one reason uh, uh, that, that is a challenge. Uh, the first challenge is that he's such a great and inspiring speaker and thinker. Um, and going through the work that he's done uh, more, more recently, it just makes you go uh, start thinking about everything that you know and rethink uh, in these very intuitive ways that he has of, of explaining things. Um, the second uh, reason why it's uh, challenging uh, is because um, I thought he was going to speak about something else. <laughs> so I prepared these beautiful slides <laughs> that I might not show, but I have one or two that might be relevant. <laughs> so let me try to go all over all of the other slides, unless there is a better way to go <laughs> over all of them. Um, I don't know if there's a keyboard, um, but otherwise, how do I get to my slides? Yeah. Oh gosh, this will Please, take a while. Would actually help. <laughs> uh... A lot of animation in his slides, uh, which is great. <laughs> is there anyone who can help me? There's a keyboard. I don't find that. <laughs> Right. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so all of that, <laughs> my comments are about all of that. Um, there we go. Yes, so I'll, I'll get closer. So... So this is me. Um, I had three sets of comments. I'll, I'll just talk on the first one, and the advantage is that I can talk a lot on one slide and be very thorough and detailed on that one in my 10 minutes. Um, but uh, so the first uh, point is on global um, distribution of incomes. And, and just to give you a starter, this is a graph. He, I, th I think you showed a graph like this. Um, on the global distribution of incomes. I think you showed 2011 or so. But from a previous paper that Branko and Christopher Lagner did, what they show in this actually beautiful graph was how the, distribu the global distribution was moving from 1988 to 2008. But what the graph has is, is, is the, it's highlighting China and India, and then you have the rest of the world, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the mature economy. So you really see how, um, how, the how China is moving along and how India is moving along. Um, now, at, at the World Bank last year, um, I was uh, co-leading a report on, um, it's called Poverty and Shared Prosperity um, Report, and we focus on 
is, uh, more standardly on poverty and the way that the World Bank defines in terms of extreme poverty. So in a sense, we're focusing on this part of the distribution from here to a left. Um, so what, what we've seen, uh, which is consistent with, uh, with, I'm going to show you in this graph, is, is the inc in incredible improvement that China and India and, and the whole South Asia and East Asia region had made uh, since the 1990 in reducing extreme poverty. So this is a slide I'll speak to for 10 minutes, <laughs> so bear with me. Um, this is the um, number of poor people uh, measured by the $1.90, so it's extreme poverty from a global point of view. Clearly, it's very, very low, uh, but this is to focus, in a sense, it helps us focus the attention in those that are, that are less disadvantaged across the world. So from 1990 to 2015, what we've seen is that in terms of poverty rates, poverty has gone down 25 points in 25 years, from 35% in 1990 to around 10% in 2010. Now, what's behind it, and you see it here in terms of numbers, is the impressive improvement of East Asia and South Asia. And the line, the vertical line over there is 2015. Our latest numbers are for that year, where we have 10%, and around half were in Sub-Saharan Africa, and, um, and the rest uh, were, were in the rest of the world. Um, what you see going forward, and these are projections, and we made several projections, more than 10 projections, and this is an average of those projections. When we, when we look at what will happen by 2030, what we expect to happen is that poverty is going to continue declining, but not at the same rate. Uh, in fact, at a much lower, slower rate. So that means that by 20, while in 2015, poverty was a 10%, extreme poverty was a, reached 10%. By 2030, it will be more around 6%. So that would be um, only a four-point decline, about four percentage point decline in 15 years relative to the impressive uh, movement that we've seen before. But what's more important about this figure is the fact that by 2030, the prediction is that more than 80%, closer to 90% of the extreme poor will be in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, there is a, there is a um, general view for many decades now that the, the, the poor are, are in Africa, and, and you have that idea uh, at the global poor from some perspective. You might have an idea, that idea in your mind, but if you see at this graph, this was not true. Uh, and, and it wasn't true until very recently. Most of the poor in the past were in this region, South, uh, South Asia and East Asia, that have made this impressive progress. So, uh, so I thought that showing this, this figure was a nice complement to, to the discussion that Branco has, that he's focusing on the impressive convergence that we've seen from 1990s uh, go, going forward, uh, from 1990s to, uh, to today, and uh, in terms of the improvement that East and, and South Asia have done. But on the other hand, 
there is a divergence because what this graph shows is that for um, the vast majority of people, they're living in countries where extreme poverty is eradicated or will be eradicated very soon. More than half of the countries in the world, extreme poverty is less than 3%. They have reached the sustainable development goal. And this will be almost all countries except for those in sub-Saharan Africa and conflict-affected economies. So, so on the one hand, there is this good news, this optimistic news. The, 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 the world is, not we, but the world is making progress in, in reducing extreme poverty. Uh, but on the other hand, the pessimistic uh, side of it is that there's, um, there is a part of the world in which extreme poverty is not only not being reduced, but in terms of absolute numbers, it is increased. And that extreme poverty is much more complex, is much more entrenched, and, and it, in many cases is associated with conflict-affected situations. So we have that, this divergence in the world that, that you'll see when you focus on the extreme uh, and, and the, on the bottom part of the distribution that, that, it's, um, that it, I wanted to put into the table as a food to, for thought. Um, and uh, yes, and I think that will be all for me. Um, thank you very much. share with you afterwards on, 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 on the other part of your talk. <laughs> uh, so now to, uh, now to welcome Paul, Paul Siegel, who Paul teaches at King's, but he's also, uh, a, he's also a member of the Inequalities Institute. He has a highly prestigious and desirable Leverhulme Research Fellowship at the moment, which is why he's looking so so relaxed, uh, <laughs> and he's one of one of the experts on global income distribution. In fact, his 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 main work has been looking at the top one percent of the global distribution. I'm not sure what what you're going to talk about now. Thank you very much, David. It's a great pleasure to be here and to, to talk after these two great thinkers and speakers and uh, good friends of mine, I'm, I'm very glad to say. Um, unfortunately, my Leverhulme finished uh, a while ago, so oh. if I look relaxed, it's because I'm faking it. Um, so I, I decided to give a little title to my comments, The Rise of the Global Meritocracy. So some of you may realize that that's a, um, a reference to Michael Young's 1958 book on meritocracy. So I'm going to start with talking a little bit about global elites, um, the global top 1%, as David said, and hopefully that will complement some of what uh, Branko said, and conveniently, while well, Maria Anna spoke about, spoke about the global poor, I'll be then talking about the other end of the distribution. And then, as a discussant, I thought I could, I thought I could be a bit speculative at the end, and so I'm going to give some speculative uh, food for thought on the idea of meritocracy, which, uh, like Maria Anna, refers to another part of Branko's talk, which, um, uh, which he didn't give this evening, but which, he's, which is going to be a significant part of his forthcoming book, which is going to be very exciting. So that'll give you a taste of some of the issues that I think you, you'll be able to look forward to in his book. Okay, how does this work? Wrong one. There we go. All right, so start with this observation. So um, in 1996, there were no Chinese billionaires. 
In 2005, there were two Chinese billionaires. This is according to Forbes World Rich List. In 2016, there were 251 Chinese billionaires. Okay, that's 14% of the world's total. India had 4.6% of the world's total. And uh, over a third, 35%, were from outside the advanced economies. So this is all very new, right? Now, we've just seen some, um, some uh, research on global income stratification. And there's a lot that's been written about global poverty. Um, uh, also, quite a lot has been written about the middle class. But if you're interested in, in questions of, of class in a more sort of classical sense, then neither the poor nor the global middle class are really classes in, a, in that classical substantive sense. So these are defined by income levels, and these are very important <laughs> findings about what's happening to the global distribution. But people within these classes don't share the characteristics that we think of classes, per se, as typically sharing. So Branko referred to some of these issues. Um, so for sure, they... Um, you know, people on similar income levels in the middle of the, of the global distribution but in different countries, they'll be in very different uh, forms of markets, they'll be in different types of labor markets. Arguably, this is something for later discussion, arguably some of them aren't actually in capitalism, so you might have proprietary producers like smallholder peasants or street vendors or small market, uh, uh, market uh, vendors who employ a little working capital and their own family members perhaps but don't have employees. So how these people fit into the global system is quite different. So neither the poor nor the global middle class form classes in that classical sense. The global elite, on the other hand, do look more like a global class. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, um, it's in work with Sudhir Anand, we find that a family of four need a disposable income, a, a take-home income uh, of about $200,000 per year. Um, uh, that's in PPP dollars. So that's going to include highly paid professionals in rich countries and also capitalists, large landowners, and senior executives in both rich countries and poor countries. And that's something I'll come back to a little bit later. So if you think about these people, well, they're typically internationally very mobile. They travel a lot. They meet each other. Uh, sometimes they're actually educated um, in, in other countries. They literally meet each other. Uh, they work together. They do business together, often in what Saskia Assassin's called global cities. They even share English as a language. And to a large extent, uh, in the sense that a class shares interests, they share interests uh, in, the, in the global capitalist system. Now, what we looked at in this particular paper was the regional composition of this global elite, the global top 1%. And what's quite remarkable is at the same time as you see just the last 10 years or so global inequality starting to decline, we also see the share of that global top 1% that come from the rich countries, that also starts to decline. So up until about 2005, for the previous couple of decades, around 85 or more percent of the global top 1% were people who lived in rich countries, in the advanced economies. In the, pre in the last 10 years or so, that's fallen from 86% down to 77%. So there's a significant increase in the, number, in the, in the share of the global top 1% coming from the rest of the world. Now, where are they coming from specifically? That's in the lower graph. You can see um, we, uh, it's, it's dominated the rise, of course, unsurprisingly. It's that green line, that's East Asia and the Pacific, which, of course, is primarily China. So China's a big part of that story. Um, the purple line going up to 3%, that's um, uh, Central Europe and mainly driven by Russia. Uh, Latin America is coming back a little bit as well. South Asia 
including India, doesn't really feature on that graph up to 2012, but maybe today in 2019 and most likely in the coming years, that's going to feature more strongly as well. We also had a look at the, the share of attendees at the World Economic Forum, and you see a similar story there. You see the, these data don't go so far back. They just start in 2002. But you can see, again, from around 2005, the share of attendees at the World Economic Forum who came from the advanced economies declined quite noticeably, not quite as much as the global top 1%, but still quite substantially from you know, around 80% to the, to the low 70%. Okay? Who are these people? I said it's, uh, you, know, you can imagine who the rich are in, in um, uh, the developing world, but I wanted to look more specifically at um, some of these professions. This is data from a global executive search company that we managed to convert. Um, and you can see in, in Brazil, China, Malaysia, and South Africa, these are uh, senior executive positions in international companies based in those countries and in those specific cities. These are all kind of global cities, if you like. And you can see that these, these senior executives, so for instance in Rio de Janeiro, um, a, a chief financial officer in an accounting and finance firm, their gross income is going to be between 88% and 150% of the threshold required for a family of four to reach the global top 1%. Okay? So in, in, in uh, Brazil, they require 480,000 reais to reach that threshold, converting into PPP dollars, and an, a, a chief financial officer in accounting and finance is going to quite likely to make more than that. Um, remarkably high in Shanghai, uh, up to double the threshold and even higher than double the threshold between the global top 1% for a family of four. And similarly, in Malaysia and South Africa, they're, they're a little lower, but they, they're, some of those guys are getting towards the global top 1%. So that gives you more of a picture of who it is in this, uh, this new rising global elite, including people from emerging economies. Now, how, how, do, what, how do people, how do the rich think about uh, their position? How do the elites legitimize their position? Well, we can see meritocracy as the modern ideology of inequality. And this is where I'm, this is on the one hand it's going to be more speculative, on the other hand it's referring to, to uh, material that's going to be coming out in, in Branko's book on the idea of liberal meritocratic capitalism, which is one of the, one of the elements of capitalism, one of the types of capitalism we have, and is arguably, it's a particularly imperialistic type of capitalism. It's spreading, I would, I would argue. So um, there's some very interesting research on this here at the III. So, so Katerina Hecht, who's here in the audience, I think, um, did some research on the very rich in London, really, really rich people in London. Um, and similarly, uh, Alice Crozer did, did research on the very rich in Mexico City, and they both found that the very rich justify their outsized incomes based on the idea that the market rewards merit. Okay, unsurprising, but we find that this isn't indeed uh, how they think about their, their high incomes. Um, another II researcher, Jonathan Mice, found that countries with higher inequality also tend to have a stronger belief in meritocracy. So in work that Mike Savage and I have been doing, we've been looking at the idea of how different varieties of inequalities interact with one another, how one type of inequality can change another. So this is where I'm going to get a little bit more speculative, thinking about how inequality affects meritocracy and how meritocracy affects inequality. So this is trying to get inside the idea of liberal meritocratic capitalism. So on the one hand, we have this, uh, the Great Gatsby Curve that you may have heard of, which shows that countries with high levels of economic inequality have low social mobility. So the usual interpretation of that is that higher income inequality causes higher inequality of opportunity. 
and the mechanisms are pretty obvious. When the rich are richer, they have more capacity to invest in the production of merit in their children. They give them uh, fancy schooling, they, they, they take them to museums and so on. And also they have a stronger incentive to keep their children in the elite because when you've got high inequality, if you drop out of the elite, you have much further to fall. So you really want to make sure your kids stay in the elite. That's inequality's effect on meritocracy. But what about meritocracy's effect on inequality? And here I'm going to go straight back to Michael Young, 1958. So he was writing in 1958. He was imagining the future, which he imagined was going to be highly meritocratic. But for him, that was a dystopian vision. And here's why. He says, the eminent know that success is just reward for their own capacity, for their own efforts, and for their own undeniable achievement. They deserve to belong to a superior class. So later, observing that this had come to pass, he remarked, so assured had the elite become that there is almost no block on the rewards they arrogate to themselves. So uh, you've got this sort of intense, in, intensive uh, uh, ideology of meritocracy actually leading to higher inequality because the rich feel they can just take whatever they want because they deserve it. But compounding that, not only do you get higher inequality, but the, the combination of meritocracy and higher inequality has a particularly pernicious effect on people lower down the distribution because then the poor recognize that they have an inferior status, not in the past because they were denied opportunity, but because they are inferior. So, uh, what are the inequality interactions implied by this? Well, they suggest the following. On the one hand, um, Young's argument, higher equality of opportunity might actually lead to higher income inequality, but also from the Great Gatsby Curve, we think that higher income inequality leads to lower equality of opportunity. And that gives us a contradiction at the heart of what Branko talks about when he talks about liberal meritocratic capitalism, which is that targeting equality of opportunity while neglecting income inequality is self-defeating. Okay? Just follow around the arrows. You increase equality of opportunity. That leads to higher income inequality, which leads to lower equality of opportunity. So one conclusion you can draw from that is that widening access to the elite is a poor substitute for closing the gap between elite and the rest of us. So how, how, in the light of that, how should we think about this widening access to uh, the global top 1% in terms of emerging economies now taking a, uh, having higher participation in that global top 1%? Well, as we've seen, it's caused largely by growth in emerging economies, and that's clearly a good thing. That's a, a huge improvement in human welfare. But at the same time, it's also caused by the fact that those emerging economies have very high levels of inequality because that means that the small share of people at the top are receiving a particularly large share of their national income, and that's what allows them to get into that global uh, elite, that global top 1%. So you can compare this with, with a study of the U.S. elite. That's very interesting. They, they, uh, the, the U.S. elite has, has increased in its categorical diversity, more women, more ethnic minorities, and so on, um, quite substantially over recent decades, even as inequality has risen and those elites have pulled further away from the rest of the population. And of course, it turns out that a female CEO, for instance, shares interests more with her firm's shareholders than with her female employees. This is where the class question comes in again. So equally, citizens of developing countries who reach the global elite may simply find themselves further removed from their own compatriots. And I think that supports Branko's uh, argument about we moving back to an age of the Marxist-style conflicts uh, driven by inequalities within countries. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much indeed, Paul. Um, we've, now got, uh, we've now got about 25 minutes for questions. Thank you. Thank you very much for a fascinating lecture and for some wonderful comments. Um, I'd like to go back to your data, Branko, since you presented averages but presume you know the data in much, much more detail than the GDP um, figures that you used to get into these averages. Um, I have a somewhat speculative question in terms of where you see these trends going in the future because um, at the moment this data comes from a period where we've had relatively unconstrained development um, but going forwards, I could see two major factors interfering with this. One is environmental constraints, and the other one would be the eruption of technology into um, GDP growth figures and development. So I know it's a speculative question, but um, I'd like to hear your view on how you think this would pan out in the future. Okay, I, I promised I would be uh, I mean, quick in answering because I think actually I would like to give uh, people a chance to ask as uh, many questions as possible. And also I would like to say a few words about uh, Anna Maria and Paul's uh, comments. But let me uh, uh, go, I mean, uh, uh, it's very speculative. It's, it's obviously we are talking about uh, the future there. I uh, don't, uh, I cannot, I mean, I really don't do projections and I, don't like them very much. When I talked about projections, they were really very broad-based, not actually with any numbers on them. Uh, in that sense, really, what would be the effect of the climate change? You know, I don't think I don't know. They are not there, but clearly they can be. But as I would like to say the following thing, actually, and it is only slightly touched in capitalism alone. Also, is that essentially I think the the uh, the situation, the trade-off, and that's where I had, of course, discussion with some people who are much more uh, into the uh, degrowth literature and stuff like that. Essentially, you have the envelope of the world, the GDP, which exists now. Uh, if you really want to stop that envelope for growing, I think there are uh, three possibilities. I mean, th three ways to, to do that. One is that actually you can say people who are currently poor and others will have to remain at that level of poverty forever which, of course, is not very politically popular. Uh, the second equally unpopular view would be to argue that there should be large redistribution for people who are rich in the rich countries. And this is not a small redistribution. We're talking about half your income to be lost to the poor people. And that would keep the envelope unchanged. And if you want to grow the envelope to actually increase the GDP and still not to run into the limit, then you have to say, okay, I'm a techno-optimist or technology will say, solve these things and all that. So I think this is uh, what I actually find uh, sometimes annoying with, in discussion with people who are actually uh, in the degrowth de side is that they are unwilling to actually acknowledge that these are the, the, the trade-offs. And they use uh, like words like thriving, which really don't mean to me anything, because does it mean that I'm thriving with $5 or per day, or does it mean I'm thriving with $5,000 a day? You know, so, uh, but I think this would be, I, I, I have not answered your question directly, but this is where I see uh, the future going. Uh, and one thing which also, they're going back to, to uh, 
Anna Maria's point is that <clears throat> the importance of Africa, because of population growth rate, and because of the so far absence of catch-up, a significant catch-up, which will be even more difficult in the future because we are talking about per capita stuff, and these countries are growing at very high rates of growth, population growth. So it's really, I mean, for Africa, it would be even more difficult than for Asia to catch up. And that, I, that's another, of course, uh, thing that I don't project in numbers, but we can actually sort of put on the table as well. As, as, as you did. And then your, okay. then your Th next Thank you. Thank you for a great presentation. I would like to put this now that we are in the inequ International Inequalities Institute in contact with other kind of inequality, which is living standards. And you are familiar with the work by uh, Leandro Prados, the long-term estimations of living, living standards. And, and actually his estimations say that the global inequality in health in the last 40 years has been widening and actually increasing right. even more the last 10 years. Uh, so uh, how would you put this in context, you know, the fact that actually between countries in income inequality is going down, but at the same time, even including China and India, between countries living in standards, uh, inequalities are going up. I, I will be very brief on that. I know <coughs> Leandro's word, work quite well, you know, because obviously this is the work which actually goes historically by using the, the human development index on top of that. Of course, Leandro puts also uh, the negative definition of freedom, so it was uh, all there. Uh, you know, I, I, you know th there was an increase in... Uh, I, we all know that. I mean, this is nothing new, but actually a decline in life expectancy which was driven by AIDS in Africa and by the collapse of the medical system in former uh, socialist countries. Uh, and you have all, you know, these two things, I'm not an expert on health and education, so I will not speak much, I will not say almost anything on that, but just to point out that, of course, things don't go together. Like, take the example of China. China, between 19, uh, the revolution of 1950 and 1980, had a significant increase in life expectancy. At the same time, had, of course, many people who died during the, the Great Leap Forward as well. So the costs were very high. On the other hand, the life expectancy went up, uh, literacy rate, rate went up, and so on, and income, actually the average income or the GDP per capita, whatever, really increased, still did increase, actually, but didn't increase nearly at the rates that we are witnessing today. So I, I, I'm not totally shocked by the fact that you can have uh, the two indicators or three indicators moving in slightly different directions. Uh, so I have two questions. Uh, first to Branko. Um, to what extent does the comeback of internal cleavage after 2003 is due to um, the rise of inequality within China? And, uh, and what do you think um, is rising inequality inside China or India will actually um, bring back the rise of global inequality in the future? And the second question to Paul, actually. Uh, to what extent the global top 1% has actually uh, global consumption or local consumption. So maybe, I mean, the other way to ask this question is to what extent we should use PPP in deflating incomes of these people. I mean, a lot of these people probably, they want to send their kids to LSE and they're going to pay the same tuition fee as people from other countries. Do you want to go first, Paul? Okay, sure, sure. Thank you. Okay, so um, uh, on the use of PPPs for the rich, that's a very interesting question. So there are kind of two, two conflicting arguments there. On the one hand, you say, right, uh, the very rich might want to send their kids to LSE. They fly around. They, they consume a lot of, um, uh, you know, they, there's a lot of uh, luxury imported goods and so on. So you might think that on that basis we should be using um, 
market exchange rates uh, for their incomes. But on the other hand, a very th something else that I'm working on, which I didn't mention here, um, uh, they also consume a lot of service, domestic service. And domestic service is the paradigmatic non-tradable good. Uh, and for that, you should be using, um, well, a, a, different, a different index that I've been working on. Um, but it's kind of moving in the other direction uh, from PPPs. So if... if um, PPPs are kind of an average of tradables and non-tradables. Your argument was they consume more tradables, which is true, but also they're quite intensive in use of the non-tradable domestic service. So it's anyone's guess how you, those things will actually balance out, and that's an interesting question to, to, to then examine empirically. Uh, on, on the China and India increase of inequality within countries, obviously it has an, I mean, negative in the sense, effect on global inequality in the sense that actually it pushes, I mean, technically speaking, I mean, mathematically, it's positive because it actually increases global inequality, everything else being constant. Uh, and uh, indeed, of course, China, you know, let me just, on Chinese inequality, Chinese inequality clearly, by all indicators, has gone up. And actually, I mentioned in my book, in uh, Capitalism Alone, that I don't think that there is a single partition in China that you take, whether you take skilled versus non-skilled, whereas you take uh, urban versus rural, province versus other province. Uh, there is no single uh, partition that where inequality is not greater today than it was like in 1980, let's suppose, 85. Uh, but at the same time, of course, the forces of convergence of mean incomes are very strong. And I have to say there is also an issue, the data issue, maybe going back to also the question before, is that the results are a little bit, for example, for India, are different. And I'm actually now much more of the opinion that we should use income data for India, which show much higher inequality. India, uh, Gini for income, is really Latin American. Actually, India is de facto, when you look at that, a Latin American country, with Gini over 50. Uh, we have been using, for historical reasons, because it was always available since 1952, an SS, a survey which is consumption-based. And there you have Gini of 38 and so on. But uh, that actually higher inequality in India does have an impact on, in, on, on global inequality. Uh, I'm, it's not going to overturn the results, but it actually would make them less dramatic. Can I just add a little comment on, on Chinese yeah. inequality? Uh, very interestingly, so of course, Chinese inequality is way higher today than it was 30 years ago. But since about 2005, right, it seems yeah. to have been declining. Absolutely, yeah. And that's partly because of declining, it's largely driven, I think, by declining inequality between urban and rural areas. Um, but how that's going to play out in the future is, is, a, is a huge and interesting question. Okay. So thank you all for your presentations. We've heard uh, now quite a bit about um, incomes in the world and not so much about wealth. I'm not really sure where, where that comes from, but I just thought I might like to bring in two other dimensions of the world we live in because we live in a world not only of money, obviously, but experiences, relationships, and life. And those two dimensions are well-being and the existence of non-human beings. And so on the well-being side, um, there was an article in The Economist pretty recently about uh, change over time since 1990 in the uh, subjective well-being of, of the Chinese. And quite extraordinarily, uh, in, they reported that well-being or happiness in China had mostly gone down over that time, and it probably had started to rise again recently, but had not yet attained the levels it was already at uh, in 1990 before the giant shift in income distribution that you are presenting. 
And um, more generally, there's a large research literature showing that people um, with materialistic values tend to be less happy, and that people with more materialistic values can somewhat catch up if they have much higher levels of material consumption. Um, and the other side is just the fact that uh, most of the terrestrial mammals in the world now are either humans or actually predominantly animals for human consumption. Um, and we're facing an interlocking set of accelerating ecological crises. And so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how that, those considerations could be integrated uh, with or related to um, what you presented here. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, on the second one, I really don't have, so that's an easy answer. Uh, uh, on the first one, I, uh, uh, how should I say? Well, of course, it's also not something that I deal with because it's what I deal, and I actually have planned to work with that, it's really income, not even wealth. So it's really income. Uh, but I've, of course, seen, and I know that uh, the Chinese life satisfaction is, is uh, even down and I, I think it's an important factoid, uh, but you know one has to realize income is an unbounded number. You know you can have billions or whatever. When you ask life satisfaction questions or happiness questions, these are questions that are bounded. You know from one to ten. Moreover, these are the questions we know that because of course the, the literature has existed for like 30 years. Uh, these are the questions that actually reflect your position to your view today compared to what you believe you should have and others have and so on. So to me, when people say, well, happiness in China is not as good as it was before, that's an important fact. But, you know, the happiness cannot track income simply because nobody here, if you were to interview people, nobody, we will not get an average 10 for happiness of life satisfaction. But each of us probably is much richer today than we would have been in the same position like 50 years or 100 years ago. And we probably would have had the same answer. But uh, what, I'm, what I'm going to say is that if we were at the level where we were at 200 or 100 years ago today, we would not have this answer. In other words, if I know that you guys are rich and I'm at the level of Australia 1820, I'm not going to be happy. But if I'm in 1820 in near Australia, I'm going to kind of say, I'm, you know, okay, I'm eight. So I think that, you know, using that against sort of as an argument against uh, significant growth in China is, again, fine, but it's not uh, dispositive, if you will, I mean. Okay. Uh, hi. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for your respective presentations, Max, from the Inequalities Institute. I would like to ask Branko about something, uh, your latest blog post that is uh, titled Democracy or Dictatorship, uh -huh, which one yeah. is better? Yeah. So I thought, hmm, that's quite interesting, you know, I wonder which one it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I come from Ukraine, so we have a very flourishing democracy that our latest election shows, but in terms, in terms of the economy, we aren't quite, uh, you know, that phenomenal. Um, but uh, I was wondering, I, I wanted for you to elaborate on that point, and you mentioned China and Singapore, where their social spheres aren't very democratically organized, yet they are very efficient and growing very fast, and you kind of hinted to the point that that might be tempting for some of the more democratic social spheres to switch to that. So uh, I'm just wondering um, if you could elaborate on that. And other you know, uh, this is such a big question. In, in, uh, I have to say in the third chapter of my book that was about China, uh, it starts with, uh, just to give you a preview, but you should read it, uh, it starts with a redefinition of the role of communism in a global history, no less than that. So that's it. 
Then it continues with Chinese experience, and then comes to the question that you have asked. And I'm, I have a list of, I think, 12 countries that I call political capitalist countries, which are actually uh, countries. Uh, I, I define the main characteristics of, of those countries is uh, uh, technocratic government, uh, absence of rule of law, and relative autonomy of the state. Uh, and of course, China, Singapore uh, are really prime example of that. Uh, now, I, I don't come with an answer, nor did I come out with an answer in a blog, although, you know, other people should also read this blog. Uh, whether one is better or the other is going... I'm just sort of uh, saying that uh, if there is a significant outperformance of more technocratic types of regimes, which I call political capitalism, by default, their attractiveness would become greater. And that's where I actually mentioned China, because China has many other characteristics. But one thing which actually one has to realize, whatever was, whoever was the most successful country, historically, we go back to the UK, to the Netherlands, to the UK, to the United States, has been pushed in a position of either themselves trying to impose or sell their model of others taking it. And, you know, China is in a position where we have had, like, 50 years almost of unprecedented growth. And it is not surprising that actually with so many people and such growth, it is a country which is now at the threshold of moving into that direction. Uh, so, but I am very agnostic. I, if you read my book, I don't come on one side or the other, but I just see the arguments which actually might make that particular type of regime more attractive. Uh, Mike. My question is addressed to Branko. Uh, what's the implication? As you mentioned, we're back to the 19th century world where global income inequality is driven by the rise of inequality within countries. So my question is that what's the implication of this for the outbreak of conflict between countries? The obvious example that comes to my mind is World War I. Have you written on it? Yeah, Do you yeah. see any parallels? between that and today's world. So basically, what's the implication for the world peace? Uh, I actually, as, as you mentioned, and I will not go through this argument, uh, it was a joint paper with uh, uh, Thomas Hauner and Suresh Naidu, uh, where actually inequality is uh, a contributory factor, or actually, let me put it like that. We use basically what, what you find in Hobson, Rosa Luxemburg, and Lenin. There are different kind of claims. And we empirically show that all these claims actually were true with the data which they didn't have because we, of course, again, had better data. Uh, but I, you know, I wish I could actually come up with some story that, that similar process of concentration of incomes in the hands of the top 1%, which then led to the uh, desire to use these savings in order to invest outside and then control those countries because of short lack of property right protection, that, uh, that I could up, up, come up with something today. Oh, I, I cannot, so I really cannot answer satisfactorily this question. However, in my book, when I said about global role of communism in history, I compared that with a kind of a historical narrative of liberalism. And I think one problem which uh, I hope that we don't have to face that is that really the peak of capitalist development before now was really before 1914. And 
all the elements that we believe, you know, you have a, a book by Mark, by Bloch, which was then popularized by uh, uh, Angel, about imp so-called impossibility of conflict because everybody would lose. So people knew that conflict would lead to a disaster to whoever is the win loser, or I mean, even winner in the conflict, and that type of globalized capitalism that is an ideal of neoliberal movement provoked the, the most, the bloodiest conflict in history of the world up to that point. So it's something which actually is very difficult to explain because all the elements that you traditionally think, you know, commerce leads to peace, you know, you have democratic governments or quasi-democratic, because Germany was quasi-democratic, Austria-Hungary was quasi-democratic, Russia had the Duma, they all go for war. And that I find something which is deeply, how should I say, worrisome. Uh, thank you very much. I uh, just want to refer to the, uh, the comment about uh, moving people out of extreme poverty. Uh, this, I believe, to be a, a ridiculous notion, especially when trying to uh, measure uh, wealth of the community, which is, nothing, which is to do with money but to do with political power. I think the gra when I see that graph ever being coming out that all people say uh, we've got people out of extreme poverty, all that is to do is to justify uh, people in society that everything's going okay, this is all good, just don't worry, it's all working, and that, in fact, we're not monsters committing horrific acts across the world. Uh, my question is, uh, which is, uh, my question is, do you think that all poverty is designed? Thank you very much. All poverty designed. <laughs> I guess I have some friends here. Um, the, um, look, uh, I'm in the business of uh, uh, taking household uh, survey data and putting into a global distribution, uh, and, and, and in a sense, uh, that's all. But I, but I know that the concept of Poverty is actually a political concept, construct. It's, 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 it's just a useful, you could look at it as a, as, a, as a way to cut the distribution, and you have the top, and you have the bottom, and you have the people in between, and focus your attention. Or you can look at that graph and, and see uh, some more political phenomenons going on behind it. Um, in terms of what it meant for me, that graph, it meant that the concept, oh, I guess they, they can't quote me here, right? So I can't really say that, don't quote me on this. No, but the, the one thing that... Uh, <laughs> so so, so, so it, no, no, quote, no quotations. No, the one thing that to me that graph showed um, was what I, I was trying to explain, uh, to, to express is that the bank um, has this public good element of measuring global poverty. Not many other people would care about it. Um, but it's essentially, it's a tool for, for alignment of incentives um, in terms of uh, support for people across the world. Um, so what that graph gave me is, 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 is these two messages. The first one is, uh, extreme poverty or the concept of $1 a day, nine, $190 a day, nine, is becoming 
very relevant uh, for, for a large part of the world. Uh, and, and therefore, the report conveniently uh, goes into looking at how countries across the world define their own, their own poverty lines and trying to take them some meaningful averages, some mediums of the poverty lines and, and presents different poverty lines and says that below 320, there are 20, uh, quarter of the world and below 550, there's almost half of the world and, 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 and tries to, to expand um, the monitoring tool that the World Bank offers uh, for people to cut the distribution at different points. Um, so you can look at that. But the other message that you can look at is, is the fact that could be a political construct. I don't particularly think that it's, it's, it's the rich world trying to impose poverty on the poorest. Um, that's not really my view. But it, but it, does, uh, it does seem to me a call for the international community to, to support countries that, where you see that the number of people that are poor is growing and it's related to the growth, it's related to the inclusiveness of the growth, and it's related to many other, to conflict and to, to people and human investment that, that people do. Um, but no, 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 sorry, we've, we've, uh, we've, we've actually come to, we've, only, we've got literally half a minute left for a question right up there. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and my question was uh, about a potential solution uh, I'd love to get your view on. Um, and it's linked with the existence of dictatorial regimes in resource-holding countries. So the Saudi Aramco IPO was going to be the biggest in the world, $2 trillion. SoftBank is buying up companies across the world, and it's also the toy of a couple of rich people who have never been elected. A couple of these people then put a lot of other people in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel for a couple of weeks, <laughs> and they achieved 100 billion in savings, which could be redistributed. So my question is, imagine I struck a deal with the Ritz-Carlton chain, and you got 10,000 rooms across the world in Ritz-Carlton's to put in there the non-elected people who have been exploiting the resources of non-democratic countries and stealing it basically from the people. So imagine you had 10,000 rooms and got very, these very people. Quick. Very, very quick. Yeah, one last sentence. How much of global inequality do you think you could uh, address in percentage by just doing one time the 10,000 people who have been stealing the resources? I can give you a... a <laughs> Read my paper. <laughs> I have a paper on the distribution of resource revenues around the world, but uh, I don't have time to explain it now. Okay. Yeah, I, think, I think given that with 100 people, they got 100 billion, the 10,000 would solve 10 trillion. Let's talk to Ritz-Carlton, because I think it's a very interesting proposition for Ritz-Carlton. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. We should thank... Thank, Thank you very Franco much. Thank Mar you. Moran and, uh, and Paul very much. Indeed.